Good morning, everybody. My name is Ernie Wagoner. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If, uh, if I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, we'd love to do so before you head on out. Um, we're in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning in this kind of mini portion of, as we, as we walk through a teaching series on the Gospel of John, these first several chapters, we're calling it Come and See, as Jesus invites different individuals to come and experience who he is. And so um, I'm closing in on officiating 20 weddings. Some of them are even from some of you that are in this room. And so I have the, the privilege of just this front row seat. When you're like in the front and you get to experience things that just no one else can. It's just this privileged moment where you get to see the bride, you get to hear the groom, you get to see everybody's reactions to things that are happening. It's a pretty interesting situation that's taking place. I mean, obviously, many times where I've seen the bride crying. Some in which, like, the makeup's just gone. It's like, why did you even put on makeup? Like, maybe you didn't have to, because you knew you were going to cry. And, you know, for others, it's, it's the groom that's, that's crying. And that's a little more irregular, but love it when that happens. Uh, sometimes, if, if you're, like, an experienced wedding uh, uh, attendee, thank you, Felicia, um, you might know that you don't look at the bride when she comes in. You look at the groom that's looking at the bride. And that's also often sometimes one of the sweetest little moments. I've, I've found myself crying at some weddings. I've seen fathers of the bride just flub. Like we've practiced and rehearsed like 50 times the night before on what to say. And they just, they just mess up the moment. Seen it happen a number of times. Uh, I've seen an individual lock their legs and fall over um, because you've got to keep your legs bent when you're in front of people in those kind of moments. Um, I've seen a, a bride just decide that she was just unintentionally, I, I think, just show up an hour late to the wedding. So people were just waiting there for an hour. I was just waiting there for an hour. That was cool. Uh, and then I saw a uh, experience, a storm come through an outdoor wedding where, like, you see the clouds coming from afar, and, and it slowly starts creeping in, and we had to finish the ceremony inside. That was interesting. But, but weddings are both beautiful and sacred, there's something about weddings that are really profound. They're intimate in that they provide this covenant between a husband and a wife, saying for better or worse, richer for poor, I'm in this with you until the end. There's something profound about that, and even what it's pointing to. There's something sacred in, in that it's ultimately this, this moment of a, a man and a woman choosing to be in covenant together. That's, this is a sign it's pointing to something even much greater of Jesus choosing to covenant himself with his church. And so we enter a story this morning where Jesus finds himself at a wedding. And something really beautiful happens in this moment. It's followed by a moment when Jesus restores the temple. And so there's going to be two scenes we're going to see this morning. One at a wedding and one at a temple. And both are about cleansing. Both are about feasting. Both are about redemption and about God's good design. So John's hope is we're walking through, and I just want to remind you of his heart as we walk through this, is he wants us to believe, to believe for many of us again on who Jesus is. And from believing again, he wants us to have life in his name. And so we're going to experience that hopefully in John chapter 2. I'd love to pray with us. As we begin, so Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the way that you have opened our eyes through the scripture on who you are through Jesus. 
And Lord, this morning by your spirit, I pray you'd help us to believe again. As we see this sign, as we see this story, these stories, Lord, illuminate our hearts afresh. Blow the dust off these stories and cause our hearts to wonder. In Jesus' name, amen. John 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we'll pause there. There's context clues in the Gospel of John everywhere. In the Bible study, we're going through a Bible study from N.T. Wright, and then this Bible study, he intros this section talking about treasure hunts. And if you grew up going to tre- being a, participating in treasure hunts or participating in kind of going to places and finding clues and trying to find a clue that leads to the next clue that leads to the next clue and you're kind of walking through that. You're very meticulous and intentional every step of the way to make sure that you're, you're seeing things in a way that you maybe wouldn't naturally be seeing things. And N.T. Wright kind of lays out for us that as we're going through the Gospel of John, it's like treasure hunts that we're, we're going through. We're trying to find certain things that John's trying to communicate to us. So for example, John has placed seven signs, these seven moments, these seven um, wonders that he's designed to communicate to us about the glory of Jesus. And the first one that we find, the first sign that we find is in John chapter 2. And the sign is here at this wedding. Jewish weddings are, are different than many of the weddings that maybe we've participated in. In, a Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, you have a betrothal, which is a very serious, even legal agreement between a man and a woman that's like our engagement, but our engagement doesn't compare to how serious a betrothal is for a man and a woman. And they have this gap period of time, like we do, with engagement, where there's a lot of preparation. And oftentimes in this day, the the a groom's husband, the wife's husband is preparing even financially for what is to come and seeing this man and woman come together. And it culminates at a wedding, specifically a wedding feast. And, and this wedding feast can last for several days. It's not a in and out just in time for the football game. You know what I mean? Like it is much longer than that. It's much more drawn out than what we've experienced. And during this time, there's lots of joy. There's lots of celebration. There's lots of feasting. There's lots of uh, food and dessert and good wine. That's just kind of a part of the package of celebration and the culmination of this man and woman being married together. The ideal time for weddings in the first century was during fall. It was after the harvest. The harvest is now complete. The pain and the toil of getting through the harvest is now behind you, and you get to come together, and you get to feast. And likely during this time, is, uh, it's a bit cooler in the evening. It's much more comfortable. You can sit out late at night together. There's usually the entire village is brought together for this feast, this time of celebration together. The groom would then go to, with his friends to bring his wife from, his soon-to-be wife from her father's house to this place of a blessing and vows ultimately for this feast. Oftentimes the groom would be dressed to the nines. Oftentimes the groom would even find himself wearing a crown as he would go and bring his soon-to-be wife uh, there. So imagine we are at this feast. And imagine everyone 
is there to celebrate this couple. It's in the fall. The weather is perfect. A cool breeze sets in as you see the sun setting, as you see the yellows and the orange and the sky. The whole town is present. Wine is flowing. Joy is being had. Feast is occurring. And then we pick up in verse 3. It says this, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So a problem is addressed. We got this stage set for this perfect wedding feast. Jesus and his disciples are now being invited to that feast. And in this moment, it could have uh, provided a, a deep level of shame within the people that are hosting the wedding. See, people came to celebrate, came to experience the joy of this new marriage. So wine was expected as a part of that feast. And if you ran out of supplies, if you ran out of the food, if you ran out of the dessert, if you ran out of the, the wine, it could be a dreadful embarrassment in a shame culture. That's what this first century context was, a shame-ridden culture that this could have caused this individual, this couple, from a social perspective, to be ruined for the rest of their lives, filled with embarrassment for not supplying the very thing that they were supposed to supply. So there was devastating social, um, there there would be devastation socially for this couple if, and for the host, if, if they were not able to supply what was being had here. And so the wine was kind of an important part of this this text here, and it wasn't grape juice. It, in this ancient uh, geographical region, which was known for agriculture, uh, they were committed to harvesting gre- grapes. That was a part of what this culture was good at. And so wine in the ancient world was, was diluted with water um, to become a, about half as fermented um, as it once was. And so it's much, even less strong than beer for us today. So it's weaker than our wine, um, just for context. But Jesus, his mom, comes to him, and she knows the social dynamics. She knows the shame that's going to potentially be had for this, this family. And, and so she comes to her son, who she knows can p- provide resources. And she's experienced that likely in the past. And, and she comes to Jesus and, and then Jesus responds to her, and he says, woman. And in, in our translation, that sounds like harsh. Like, dude, like, come on, it's your mom, dude. And, and, it's, and it's not like that. It's not harsh like we read that. Maybe on the contrary, it'd be like, dear woman, or it'd be like, ma'am. Something much more softer uh, that Jesus is communicating. John actually bookends uh, twice on the front end of Jesus' ministry and at the cross, at the, at the very end of his life before he rose, uh, he set, calls his mom woman twice, uh, kind of bookending uh, even their relationship. So he says, uh, ma'am, or good, dear woman to, to him. And again, the tone in Jesus' response isn't rude, it's, it's an idiom. What, uh, what, 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 is, what to do with you and me? Like he's just, he's using this idiom here, and he says, my hour has not yet come. So that's used six times in the Gospel of John. And this hour is referencing the cross, so over and over and over again, we're getting this, this, this language that Jesus, is used, that Jesus uses around, my hour has not yet come. And he's referencing the future hour of his cross. 
and death. And so in one sense, the entire gospel of John is, is moving. The, the back half of the gospel of John is all about the cross and leading up to the cross. And so in one sense, the entire gospel is moving towards Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and his glorification. In another sense, the, the ministry of Jesus is very relevant to the Gospel of John. These elements are, are signs that we see, and this is the first one, this sign that's pointing to, it's like you're driving down um, 75, and you've hit Chattanooga, you've gone through Chattanooga, and then you see a sign that says, I don't know, 90 miles to Atlanta. I don't know what it is. It could be 70. It doesn't matter. I don't really care. And so if I'm frustrating you, I'm sorry. So it's just the certain amount of mileage that's, that's away from this sign to the city of Atlanta. You don't stop there and say, we're in Atlanta. No, it's like 70, 80, whatever miles away is how far away it is. But it's a sign pointing to the fact you keep going, you're going to hit Atlanta. And so these signs that we see through the Gospel of John are, are pointing to something. And so when John tells us in our treasure hunt, hey, a sign's here, you've got to stop and you've got to say, what is it pointing to? What is it telling us about the kingdom of Jesus? And so that's what's happening here. And so um, she leans over to the people that are in charge of the servants. And she, says, she says, do whatever he says. So we have this feast we have everything laid out for this wedding feast. We have this shame that's about to be put upon this couple and the person that's in charge of the wedding feast. Then we pick up in verse six. It says this. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, uh, drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we see in response to the lack of wine, uh, six stone waters, uh, uh, stone jars of purification. They are the size of up to six orange five-gallon buckets, like Home Depot buckets. So these things are large, if you can imagine that. There's large jars, and they're stone because un- uncleanness can't uh, enter into the realities of what a stone jar is. And these were likely used for guests who would come and wash their hands as they entered into the feast. They, they represented something important. The, the water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, which Jesus was to replace with something even better. So we can imagine what happens next. Or, or, sorry, we cannot uh, we can only imagine what happens next, that, that Jesus asks these people to, to fill these things up, these massive jars up with, with water. And then after having them fill, we, we don't know what Jesus did. We don't know if he closed his eyes and prayed a prayer. We don't know if he blessed these jars. We don't know if he knew how significant this sign would be. We don't know all of the things. But what we know uh, is that they did it. They did what Jesus said. And they brought, after they filled these jars up, they said, give the master of the feast a taste of this 
what was water. And they bring it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast is used twice in this text. And uh, he receives the water and he tastes it. And he realizes it's some of the best wine he's ever had. And he responds, he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. What is he saying? You, you bring the good wine, and then after drinking some, the, the poor wine, the, the cheaper stuff is what you can then use. But he says the best stuff has been left until now, and he honors, and he celebrates. He gives dignity and value to the very couple who is about to be filled with shame. See, it wasn't just wine. It was very good wine. And he was shocked by this. See, it wasn't the cheap stuff. It wasn't two-buck chuck. It wasn't mass-produced wine. It, it wasn't just sweet, tart, uh, wine. It was carefully selected, meticulously produced wine. It was this fantastic vintage wine, likely from the Beaujolais region of France. Like This was the good stuff. Like This guy had had wine before. And he tastes this stuff, and he's like, this is fantastic. To be clear, this isn't promoting drunkenness. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Drunkenness can ruin your life. And I don't, I don't want to tie this in for you to now justify your habits. Um, we must be wise in how we deal with alcohol. Moderation is king when it comes to alcohol. Don't rely on alcohol to cope if you feel like you need a beer every day. It's a problem. And so I would encourage you to be wise. Some of you firsthand know how alcohol can ruin your life. And so I just encourage you as we talk about this to be wise in our use of alcohol. This is not about justifying drunkenness. This is about a sign that's taking place in this moment. The question is why? Why spend this time focusing on this? And it says, again, I read it uh, earlier, that this is the first of the signs, that Jesus manifested his glory in this moment. So why was this a sign? What I mean, he was just trying to help out a dude who didn't count the, the wine. Like, it doesn't seem like it's this, like, grandiose sign that's taking place. Reynolds Price, who's a professor, who was a professor at Duke University, he said this about this story. Because it's, it's confusing if you really think about this is a sign. He says this, if you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, that is, if you were just making up stories about Jesus to get across his power and glory, who would invent the inaugural event of Jesus' career as a miraculous solution to mere social embarrassment? Like, if you step back, it's like, what? Why is this so important? Why would John take significant amount of time and energy to focus on this? Why is this a science? In other words, Jesus is using all of his great power, his divinity, and just dealing with a, a catering malfunction. See, if you were making up a story, a story about his greatness and power, you'd never add this to the story, which means that it's here because it really happened. And it's here because it's something that's important for us to understand. See, the more I peer into this sign, as I've been just even preparing these last few weeks, the more I find the majesty of Jesus and his kingdom on display that you can very easily miss, like you can very easily miss treasure hunts and the details and the clues therein. See, it's not something you catch reading quickly. 
See, within these words, if we're slow and we're careful, we see the glory of Jesus and his kingdom on display. So what's the point, the sign pointing to? We have this master of the banquet, the master of the feast, the text says. This is a toast master. Another translation says the master of the feast. It was the master of ceremonies. It was the, the chief steward, and his responsibility was to arrange the food, the music, and the wine. And so between him and the, the, the ones that were putting on the feast, they were the ones that were responsible for all of this that was happening here. And so Jesus provides what is necessary to make this banquet not flop. He becomes the toastmaster. He, where the party was dying and where shame was ensuing, Jesus recreated a dying party and turns it into an incredible party. So what is he showing? He is taking the place of the shame of the toastmaster. And in return, he's becoming the toastmaster. He's becoming the Lord of the feast. See, yes, if you follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. There's no promise to have an easy life if you follow Jesus. Yes, when you follow Jesus, there's going to be things that you're not going to understand. Life's going to hit you in the stomach in a way that you were not expecting. It's difficult. It's confusing. It's challenging. But in time, feasting is inevitable. See, what Jesus came to offer, he came to offer life from death. He came to offer joy from shame. He steps in and he becomes our toast master. And he provides what only he can provide here. What he promises is a feast. The sign is a coming feast where he will be the master of the feast. He will take a dying and shame-filled world and bring life and exuberance and feasting to his people. See, if we go back to a, a text in Isaiah 25, something we reference frequently in the Advent season, we read about this feast that is to come. And as you read this, I want you to think about the, how, how Jesus came and he didn't just provide just enough for this wedding. He provided a ridiculous amount more than he needed to provide. With ridiculously... Uh, better resources than you could have imagined. And so let's tie that into this text that we read in Isaiah 25, where Isaiah promises a coming day where this will happen. Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of which rich of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, 
let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You can imagine that when Jesus had this moment that he was thinking fully of this, this future day. And you can imagine the joy he had in his heart of being a sign, knowing that this would be a sign of the coming kingdom, of the coming feast. And in a way, you can imagine the smile on his face as he watches that toastmaster take that sip of wine for the first time because he knows this is a sign of what is to come. See, something I overlooked in, uh, in John 2, 1, it says, on the third day, there was a feast. See, John is pointing to the future dawning of a new age where Jesus is creating a sign, pointing to a coming kingdom and a coming age where everything sad is going to come untrue, where death will be no more, where sin and sorrow will be wiped away, where the dragon will be slain, where he will make all things new and we will feast. So this little picture of water turning into wine is so much more than a little pitcher of water turning into wine. It's about a feast that Jesus creates, replacing shame and bringing joy, where a dying party is resurrected and a party is filled with joy and feasting. And how can we receive this feast? We receive it by faith. Oh, friends, we are invited to believe again. Life is hard. Following Jesus isn't easy. But in time... Feasting is inevitable so that you would believe and have life in his name. The story continues. I told you we got two stories. That's halfway. So we got a wedding feast and we're about to see something crazy happen in the temple. So we pick it up in verse 13. It says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem So simply put, we got a Jesus moving. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The Passover is occurring, which is a feast. Uh, We've talked frequently because John talks about it frequently, about this Passover meal that's taking place. It's simply a reminder year in and year out of the faithfulness of God to the people of God, that he provided a final and ultimate provision in a lamb that was to be killed and the blood was put over a doorpost and death followed every home except the ones that didn't have the blood. It's a sign of the coming lamb who would take away sin, the sin of the world. And then it continues in verse 14. I read the rest of this section. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 40, sorry, yeah, 46 years to build this temple and, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
So in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptic Gospels. The fourth Gospel is the Gospel of John. In the first three Gospels, we hear about this this moment happening at the end of Jesus' ministry. And in John's Gospel, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So it's like, whoa, did Jesus do this multiple times? And I would say no. Likely he did it once, and likely John is putting this at the beginning strategically to build what he's building in the life and story of Jesus. He's just changing the timing. He's not changing anything else. And so when we look at some of these words, it says things like drove them away and poured out the coins. I mean, imagine the sounds. Imagine the, the passion. Imagine the ruckus that was the animals that was in the temple to begin with. And then imagine Jesus coming in and cleansing it. It wasn't quiet. It was ruckus and loud. Holy anger furious at what had become of the temple. This is not the design of what God created for the temple to be. It was meant to be a place of encounter, and now it had become a a place of religious commerce. And Jesus said, take these things away. He said, do not make my father's house a house of trade. I mean, Jesus is gentle and lowly, yes. And Revelation tells us that he has fire in his eyes. And he has this perfect uh, tension of, of care and tenderness. But in this moment, man, he's, he's serious. Why? The intention, his intention for his coming, the heart of God was re- to restore and, and recreate God's design for, for man and God to dwell together. That's the point of the cross. He would reconcile God and man and therefore man and man and woman and woman and man and woman together in harmony. And what had become of this is this is like a Tower of Babel recreated where God was no longer present and it was only this kind of secularized religious endeavor of commerce. This is not about good ethical business practice. It's not that at all. See, the, the point here is that the temple was designed to be a place of brokenness. It was designed to be a place of contrition, of of holy adoration and prolonged petition. And it become this noisy commerce like the New York Stock Exchange. It's like, what has happened? Why is it now like this? He was blowing up the institution, creating a new standard that it wasn't about what you do. It was about your heart. Jesus was resetting us on this is about your heart before God, to love God, love people. So what we see here is this default mode of the human heart. The default mode of the human heart is to become religious and move away from God. That's what happened in the temple. They had become religious. They had taken the things that God had taught them, removed God from them, and now just using the means of God without actually having God Himself. Martin Luther said this several hundred years ago. He says, even after you are converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. Our hearts are naturally moving away from God, which is why we say we're gospel-centered. Because it's not a doorway we walk through, but it is the very ground we stand on as we follow Jesus to remember his grace and his mercy, to remember his invitation to know him and to love him. See, it became religious services. And so Tim Keller goes on to say, religion operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. The basic operating principle of the gospel is I'm accepted by God through the work of Jesus, therefore I obey. 
So we can easily turn our faith into what this temple experience was. We can become just like these people. And Jesus reminds us as we read through this, it's not about just doing stuff. It's about your heart, humility, tenderness before God, repentance before God. See, the religious leaders now question Jesus. They're like, whoa, what gives you this authority? You're coming into our turf. You're flipping over our tables. Our pigeons are now gone. Like, you have now come in and you've jacked up everything that we had. Now our money's everywhere. You know what it's like when you drop money on the ground? You just leave it. It's just annoying. Like, I don't want to pick it up. It's frustrating. They're feeling all of these things. And so he says something shocking, outlandish. Something we will see in the coming weeks is, as Jesus oftentimes will say one thing and people say he's saying another thing. He says, I'm going to destroy this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. They're like, what? It took 46 years for people to build this darn thing. And you're telling me you're going to rebuild it in three days? He wasn't referring to the temple. He was referring to the day that he's going to die, be put into the grave, and three days later he would rise again. He's calling his shot. And he's saying, I'm going to die, and then three days later I'm going to rise again. It's this beautiful reminder that he is bringing restoration to what the temple was and to the original design of God dwelling with man. Friends, we are invited to know God. Religion can and will steal from you. We will naturally find ourselves on the fringes of our faith, trading with commerce in the outer courts, never entering into the holy holies of actually encountering God. And Jesus is coming and he's inviting us into a new way, the original way of knowing God. See, Jesus invites us to believe again. These two stories, they they provoke a, a simple question. What is your perception of Jesus? How good is he? How great is he? How generous is he? See, this sign we read about today and this story is pointing to God's good intention for God to dwell with man. His intention of creating new life and his willingness to go to such great heights to achieve this. See, this invitation is not a crutch. This invitation is life. This invitation is to taste and see. This invitation is to experience God. This invitation is to feast now in part and then in full. It's not about hearing about the feast. It's about experiencing the feast. I'll close with this. How many of y'all been to Jenny's ice cream? Yeah, some of us? Not enough. Can we just do that again? Because if it's... Okay, Maggie, for our 12th anniversary, we're going to have Jenny's ice cream. That's weird. Y'all go to Jenny's. Come on, live a little, guys, for real. This is ridiculous. So it's one thing. For half of you guys, this is going to be true for you. This is sad for me. Maybe you just don't like raising your hand. That's fine, too. Whatever. Maybe you're traumatized by how church growing up, you always had to raise your hand. You deconstructed from raising your hand in church. So that's fine. Whatever. So anyways, so if you just read about Jenny's ice cream, you would read about going into this, entering into this door, and you smell something that you've never smelt before. The smell of fresh made waffle cones that are just ridiculous, okay? So you, you enter in, you're reading about this, okay? 
And then you're going to have a variety of unique flavors that are not just the traditional flavors that you think you like because they're inviting you to experience new, fresh things with more fresh ingredients. You're going to read about how when you taste of this ice cream, you're going to drool like a St. Bernard, okay? So you're like, you are reading about this, but just reading about it's like, man, maybe, maybe that's true. Is it one thing to read about that? It's another thing to experience it yourself, to actually sit down on a warm day and allow the crunch of the waffle cone and the brambleberry ice cream. Brambleberry girl, come on, my, my, my. Brambleberry mixed with some salted caramel, my preference. My wife prefers the peanut butter. I don't like peanut butter ice cream, but she likes that. And so whatever it is for you, you got it. And you got it, I got it on my beard and I don't care right? It's just cold on my face. It's cold in my mouth. It's just good. Like there's one thing to read about it, and it's another thing to experience it yourself. And friends, so it is with God. Man, it's one thing to, to read about feasting. It's one thing to talk about how God invites you into knowing him. And it's very different when you actually experience it, and you experience a peace in your soul that provides rest amidst chaos and fears and concern and anxiety when you remember that you are just the clay and he's the potter and he's holding your life together. It's one thing to talk about that and it's a very different thing to experience that. Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, there's a very difference. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. And through this sign of the wedding feast, we're invited to experience God by faith now. Through the story of the cleansing of the temple, what is that inviting us into? Jesus is inviting us into removing the fluff of the religious nature of the outer courts, which is where they were, and to move into the fact that he's torn the veil. And you have access to God. And you can know him, you can receive from him, and you can find life in his name. Friends, we're invited to feast now in part and in that day in full. And we're invited to know God. Amen? This, my friends, is how Jesus manifested his glory in chapter 2. Let's pray together. Hmm. Father, this morning we, we give you thanks. You haven't left us, God. We continue to week in and week out remind ourselves that you have not left us to our own vices. You've come to rescue us. You've come to restore. You've come to renew. You've come to give us life in your name. You've come to invite us to believe and for many of us to believe again. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to refresh us. Remind us of your goodness and your care and your grace. Thank you that you haven't left us to try to figure out who you are, but you have disclosed yourself to us fully and you've manifested your glory to us, God.